0: And I learned also of how fragile life is. Mm -hmm. So many of the people that I had the opportunity to, to care for were not necessarily there because they were aging and, and just, you know, at the end of their life because of their age, many of them were at the end of their life because of a disease. And some of them were younger than me. And it became very real to me that life is fragile.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Hello, everyone. Joining me today is my friend Jerry Fenter, who has an amazing heart in the world of hospice and end-of-life care. After 30 years of ministry as a pastor for churches, Jerry began a new career as a hospice chaplain in 2010 and felt that he had found his true home in serving people on their end of life journey. Today, he serves as the system director of spiritual counselors for Harbor Healthcare System, a multi-site hospice agency. Jerry was also the co-owner of the Heart of Hospice podcast for six years and used that platform to encourage and educate hospice professionals. In 2018, Jerry was selected to serve as a member of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Advisory Council for the Texas Health and Human Service Commission. It's his passion to use each of these roles both past and present, to help improve the quality of life for every person needing hospice and palliative care. Welcome to the show, Jerry. I'm so excited to have you on today.
0: Thank you, Jenny. It's nice to be here with you.
1: Um, before we jump into your story and how your experiences have shaped you both personally and professionally, where can people find you?
0: Where can people find me? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the best place probably is on LinkedIn. Uh, if they want to, to check out my bio there and my you know, career highlights and things like that, that's probably the best place for people to find me is just to look me up on LinkedIn.
1: Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes for people to find you there. So in your bio, you mentioned that you had been in the church ministry for 30 years. How did you then find yourself working in hospice as a spiritual counselor or chaplain?
0: Well, so I spent 30 years in ministry, which you, as a minister, you find yourself in all kinds of circumstances with people, helping Mm -hmm. them in all those occasions. I can't tell you how many bedsides that I sat next to as people were dying as well as how the funerals that I attended and officiated, and then the people that I just spent time with as they grieved because of the loss of, of someone that they loved.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: i I was in contact with grief and death during my ministry, uh, not often, but it was it was something that I was a part of in many uh, in many people's lives.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, in 2010. Um, I had decided to make a career change. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I decided to make a career change. And I had a friend who told me that she thought I would make a a great hospice chaplain. And I told her under no circumstances was I interested (laughs) in anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I I wasn't. I was just not anything that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, I was, of course, looking for work at that point, And I ran across uh, an, an ad for a hospice chaplain right in our town. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is a sign. That perhaps <laughs> I should pursue this. And uh, so I did and ended up getting hired for the job as a chaplain, a hospice chaplain. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. Thought that I you know, thought that all of my experience as a hospice or excuse me as a as a minister would be all that I really needed to to, to know. What I found out was there's so much more to, to this work and hospice and end-of-life care than I was prepared for. And so at that point, I began searching for all kinds of material, anything that I could find to help me really. Fit in with this role and do the kind of work that I wanted to do to help people who mm-hmm. are at their end of life and and to also help those who are grieving uh, as well. So I just began trying to find any resource that I could find, and honestly, couldn't find a lot of resources back then. Okay. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we ended up starting the Heart of Hospice podcast was because we wanted to help people who are also seeking to. Uh, to help people at the end of life, and so that was part of why we started the Heart of Hospice podcast. So I find myself working in hospice mainly because I needed a job, and what I found when I really got into doing this work in hospice is that my friend was right. Uh, it really was a calling that uh, that I was made for, and. Mm-hmm. I in, I love the work that I get to do in hospice, which really sounds crazy because a lot of people, when they find out that I work in hospice, they're like, oh, that must be so hard to do. And I'm like, no, it's really not. I love I love doing this. And of course, they think that I'm, I'm sort of crazy. That I, I <laughs> love <what> I <laughs> but I, I do. I love what I get to do and love the work that I'm involved in.
1: Yeah. I get that too in grief. How could you do that? How could you... That must be so hard. Well, no, it's actually like a passion for me. Right, right. Exactly. So that's amazing that you and my story is kind of similar in that I didn't like I didn't ever think that I would like I grief was not on my radar ever. Mm -hmm. Like. I didn't even really know what grief was like, I didn't really have a good concept of grief. And, um, and then one of the women in our school community, um, her husband died suddenly. And I just took a meal to the family. <laughs> and I found myself supporting her in her grief. And like you, it just became a passion that I felt called to. And that's how I got started in the grief world. It wasn't like anything that I'd planned. It wasn't anything that I'd, necessarily prepared for. I was in speech language pathology before that. And so I'm like, hmm, this
2: is
1: <laughs> not connected at all. <laughs> um but it was it was just like the calling of calling of the work, calling of both like a life mission calling and also like an internal calling that it just fit with me.
0: Right. So uh, I I kind of explained it as a calling of the heart. It really was the heart of who I am to uh-huh. be able to do this. And I I find it just, it fits who I am and what I do. And I, I can truly say that I enjoy what I do. And now in the, in the current position that I hold as a system director, I don't actually have a lot of contact with our patients. I don't do patient care like I did in the beginning. Uh-huh. And I miss that yeah miss not being with the the people and the the families and and being able to actually do that work and and being there face to face with them uh and when i do get that opportunity i thoroughly enjoy it
1: Mm -hmm, i can imagine yeah so how did working with people at their end and at the end of life and in hospice affect you personally
0: You know, I was in the beginning really uh, uncertain about um, about how i would would really fit into working in end of life care mm-hmm. um, because there was so much um, misconceptions around it. About what hospice was and and this end of life journey that people are on and and so many misconceptions about it and I I wasn't quite sure and yet the more that I and the longer that I worked in it the more that I realized that um, that this is a calling that people have to work in this this industry and I knew that um, that it was for me. And I learned also of how fragile life is. Mm -hmm. So many of the people that I had the opportunity to to care for were not necessarily there because they were aging and, and just, you know, at the end of their life because of their age. Many of them were at the end of their life because of a disease. And some of them were younger than me. And it, it became very real to me that life is fragile. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of things that it it caused me to to think about. It caused me to to realize my own life is fragile too. Mm-hmm. and that I need to to be, have some preparation uh, in in certain ways, because I had seen so many of these families. Who were not prepared uh, for what was happening? There was no preparation. Things happened so quickly that it was it was not uh, on their radar that anything like this could possibly happen to them. And I realized that there's needs to be some preparation done there. So advanced care planning is very important. It's a very important aspect of preparing ourselves, whether we have a serious illness or not, whether we have a terminal illness, even if we are healthy and strong, we still need to have an advanced care plan in place uh, because things can happen very quickly because life is fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also realized that that grief and mourning is so different for every person. And that became a very interesting um Sidebar of what I learned because in my earlier experiences working in the ministry with people who were grieving, many of them tended to have the same grief patterns, okay, for whatever reason. And yet, as I moved into working in hospice and end of life care, it became very apparent to me that people grieve very differently, Uh, even if they're grieving. The same person who died mm-hmm. they're going to have a very different grief experience because their relationship with that person was very different too
2: right
0: and so you may have all the siblings uh all the children of this one person who died their parent who died and yet every one of those siblings are going to grieve in a different way They're because they had a different relationship maybe one of them was a caregiver was the primary caregiver. They're going to have a very different grief experience than the child who lived a thousand miles away and only called occasionally. Right. That person is going to grieve differently than the caregiver. And so every person will have their own grief experience that's completely different. And it's important for them to also realize that that grief experience for them doesn't have to look the same way for somebody else in the family. Mm -hmm. too often they begin comparing, well, you're not grieving as much as I am. Why aren't you grieving as much as I am? And then the other one's like, Well, why are you grieving so much? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it, why was it that important to you? And then there's a a disenfranchised grief that often happens too, where somebody's experiencing grief and yet everybody's like, Well, why are they, why are they so upset? It doesn't make any sense because they were maybe an ex-spouse or or maybe they were just a uh, a nephew or a cousin. Why do they grieve? Why are they grieving so much as as everybody, as anyone else is? Mm-hmm. And so disenfranchised grief was a thing that I also began to learn about the longer that I, I was in uh, hospice and end of life work. So there were a lot of ways that, uh, that it made me realize my own mortality
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, brought that to the forefront as well when i started uh, i was literally turning 50 years old when uh, when i came into hospice and so it was almost like a midlife crisis happened <laughs> to me yeah. at the same time and it was it was quite an experience to to go through that and come face to face with my own mortality at the same time that i'm working with people who are facing their mortality
2: mhm
1: yeah that that is an interesting juxtaposition um and i've learned that too as i've the more that i've supported people in grief and the more that i've been immersed in the grief and end of life field life is short Mm -hmm. life is very short and we don't know like I'm just over 40 so I'm still have a lot of years quote to go but I've been sick for a couple weeks so I'm like oh yeah this this human body of mine has limitations I could die Mm -hmm. at any time so what what do I need to do to get my advanced care directives and plans ready so that in case something happens when something happens because we are all mortal. We yeah. all face face our mortality and the mortality of others. So that can serve as an uh, a wake up call. Huh? I yes. don't I don't want all of the logistical mess and chaos that Mm -hmm. can so easily happen.
0: It can. I've watched families who did not have any advanced care plans made Mm -hmm. and the chaos in the family is just, uh, it's hard to watch, honestly. And then I've seen those who, those who had an advanced care plan and things for the most part went very smoothly for them. And so the the difference can be drastic when it comes to that. And so I always encourage people to have some kind of an advanced care plan, some kind of advanced directive in place uh, to help help the families so that they grieve less than they Mm -hmm. would otherwise.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We're going to go off script a little bit. What's the... For someone who's just starting advanced care directives or advanced care planning, what would be the first, like, the first baby step? Because planning, like, wrapping up and organizing and planning for a whole life worth of stuff and assets and care and contingencies and conditions, that can be overwhelming for some people. Right. So, if somebody's just starting out on that path of pre of getting their end of life affairs in order, what would be like a baby step that people can take?
0: I think the number one thing that they can do, the first thing that they should do, is choose a proxy. Who's going to be? Excuse me. Who's going to be your healthcare proxy? That person. You need need to choose the right person for that job. Mm -hmm. And so so making that selection first is what's going to be needed. Uh, Because if nothing else is planned, if you make a plan for nothing else, once you've at least made that decision and put that in place, they hopefully, that person should hopefully know what your wishes are or at least an idea of what it is that you would want, whether you put it in writing or not. So the first baby step, decide who's going to be your proxy, your healthcare proxy uh, for a medical power of attorney, and even going a step further and choosing someone who will be your um, your proxy for a durable power of attorney, which means over you, someone who could take care of your finances in case you can't do uh, you can't make any decisions about your finances. And then the next step is to talk to that person and explain to them, communicate to them what your wishes are. What are your wishes for your, your health care uh, if something should happen to you? And what are the things that you want and don't want? So being able to communicate those things can be difficult at times. So there are a lot of resources out there that can help you make those decisions and be able to communicate them. There are things like the Go Wish cards. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: There are resources like that. The Death Deck is another one. These are kind of built around a game-like format, and yet they help you communicate how you really feel about these end of life concerns, these healthcare concerns that people have. And and so that would be what I would encourage people to do. Number one, choose your proxy Mm -hmm. and then communicate with your proxy. Let them know what your wishes are. And if you need help, use some of these resources that are out there that are available to, to guide you in that way. Uh, One of the resources that I would encourage them to use is the Conversation Project. The Conversation Project is an organization with a terrific website with all manner of helps and resources to guide you, and all of it's free. And so I would encourage them to use the Conversation Project to get started on creating their advanced care plan.
1: Awesome. And I'll put those links, the uh, links to those references and resources in the show notes as well. Amazing. Good. So back to the script. <laughs> um, that's how we flow on the Share Your Story podcast. We we go with a conversation wherever it takes us, and uh, sometimes it goes Good. off script, and that's fantastic because that's the direction that it needs to go for the day.
2: Exactly. Um, <laughs>
1: So you talked about the most exciting part of your job, um, of being with the people and and sitting vigil with them and and helping them through their end of life stages. Um, What's the most challenging aspect of your job?
0: I guess that's hard for me to really to say what is most challenging, because I enjoy what I do so much, and so challenging aspects, I think, come down to um, working in that within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So, what I mean by that is, working in the healthcare system means that you you're going to be doing a lot of documentation, and even from a chaplain's perspective, we're going to also document everything that we do and what we see, Uh, just like a doctor would, just like a nurse would, just like a social worker would. We're also going to be documenting uh, the care that we provide and what we see in the patient from a spiritual perspective, from a spiritual existential perspective. And so that can be challenging. That was the challenge that I had when I first started Mm -hmm. because I had no problem going to a person's home and sitting with them and talking with them about their life and talking with them about you know what are their fears, what, what are the things that, that they find challenging right now and where are they in their their lives and what's on their heart and things like that. But then it was documenting all of these things. How do you how do you document this in a way that's going to make sense? So we're documenting spiritual things, in a clinical world
2: and yeah so
0: that sometimes can be very challenging to to do that uh so it wasn't being with the people that was challenging even even in situations that were sometimes uncomfortable and difficult um i would still find in those situations but it's documenting that care that can sometimes be a challenge figuring mm-hmm. out how to to make sure that i i I actually explained where this patient was and what they said and and how they said it and keeping confidentiality as as well in all of that. And so that can be be a challenge, no doubt.
1: Yeah. So how did you navigate that? Being able to document the spiritual in a clinical world and also directly quote your patients and keep confidentiality. That seems like a lot of,
2: Yeah, there's there's you. a lot of yeah,
0: there's a lot of push and pull and 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 uh, and tactfulness that you you end up you word things very carefully, you uh-huh. word things very carefully, um, because you do want to keep their confidentiality, and yet you also want to be able to let anyone who reads this documentation understand that this person is struggling with a certain situation or certain circumstance. Uh, and maybe it's a circumstance with inside their family unit that they're struggling with. But you can't go into too much detail with that because you would be breaking confidentiality to do that. And so you mm-hmm. say it in a way that's vague enough to let people know there's a a situation. there's a circumstance that's that they're faced with and yet not giving the details of the the circumstance if that makes sense,
1: yeah. it's it sounds even hard. Like, as you're explaining it now, like Mm -hmm. to grasp that vagueness, but also like abstract enough to be vague, but concrete enough to convey the message of what, what's happening with your patients.
0: Right. Right. And many times spirituality and even grief for that matter is such an emotional, um, is an emotional thing. And so how, how do you enumerate that and quantify that, which is what clinical is always asking for. Yeah. Clinical is always quantifying things. What's the what's the patient's temperature. It's all about the numbers, you know, what's the patient's temperature, what's their blood pressure, Uh, you know, what's their arm circumference. And and so they use numbers all the time and they quantify the patient's care through those numbers. And yet when it comes to spirituality and grief, how do you quantify how people feel? And so that's can also be a challenge at times too. So is there, how, how, how serious is their grief? You know, how complicated <laughs> is their grief? And it, it can be a, a challenge to really be able to spell that out and quantify it in a way that that makes people understand where that person is.
1: Mm-hmm. It's not like you can say on a scale of one to 10, how, how painful is your grief?
0: Right, exactly.
1: And even if you could, that skill wouldn't mean anything because as you mentioned before, our grief is so individual and every person's expressions and experiences with grief are so unique. So even, even on a one to 10 scale, it would be like, what does that even mean across individuals?
2: Sure.
0: Yes. Yes. So we have to put a lot of this into, um, into just words and express it through the feelings that, that, they've expressed. Uh, and sometimes it's very subjective. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard, hard to put into to that quantifiable uh, aspect of the work that we do.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that would be super tough. That would be super tough for me to do. Yeah.
0: So I think that's probably the, the most challenging aspect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so from previous mentions of previous conversations, you've mentioned that you've also had some personal experience with grief and death. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure. So after I started working (laughs) as a hospice chaplain, um, I had been working for probably about three years as a hospice chaplain, and I had not really known any personal losses, um, not not up close and personal losses. Mm-hmm. I had I had lost my uh, my grandparents uh, as an adult. I was an adult when they they died. But then in uh, 2013, my mother went into the hospital to just have a, a simple knee replacement surgery. She was 82 at the time and we thought everything was going to be just pretty well cut and dried nothing to be you know no, no serious uh, after effects from that and she would go home and I received a call that she was having difficulty breathing after the surgery and to the point that they were they were wanting to intubate her and uh, and put her on a ventilator and she refused she did not want a ventilator So, I they lived 800 miles away from me, and so I quickly, you know, made arrangements and drove there, and realized how serious she was. Um, They had placed her on what they called a 100% non-rebreather, and which meant a mask on her on her face. And she, did, she didn't like it, but she kept it because otherwise her O2 sats would just drop into the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. A very serious situation. And they finally told us that what they believed that she had was an interstitial lung disease, which they couldn't do anything about it. There was nothing they could do at this point, And that the... You know the only way that she could continue to live was with using the non rebreather, the mask, and that they said it would continue to get worse. She said that she wanted to go home, and as she we immediately set up hospice for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went home on a Sunday, and uh, we made we brought in hospice at that point. And, I mean, I knew what was going to happen. I, I knew, you know, that you know, this is hospice. I work in hospice. I understand what's happening here.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and within two days by Tuesday, uh, after coming home Sunday, um, she died. Wow. And so it was something that was totally unexpected. You know, we didn't think that, you know, a simple knee replacement surgery was going to, to lead to this. And so we, we were just blindsided by her death. We were all in agreement with what was happening because it's what she wanted. And mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that she died where she wanted to. And so she was she died at home very peacefully. Um, the death happened in, a, in probably the best way that it possibly could uh, given the circumstances. All of her children were there. We were all with her. My dad was there. Uh, And it was in that way a very meaningful experience. Uh, Again, about as good as it could be. Mm -hmm. But that had a, a very profound effect on me. And even though I was grieving her loss, After, you know, three days of bereavement leave that you get at work, I needed to be back at work, but I'm working with people who are dying Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm have a very fresh grief experience of my own. It was very challenging to go back to, to work after the death of my mother, um, And I can give you one experience in particular that was very challenging for me. I had gone to see a patient who was close to the same age as my mother. And there were so many similarities that when I saw this patient lying in the bed, I mean, it was a flashback to seeing my mother lying in her bed before she died. Mm -hmm. And I... Finally, just had to leave the room because I I could feel the the grief beginning to well up inside me, and uh, and I had to leave. I continued to do my work as a chaplain, and I think probably do it better than I did before. Uh, I tell people, you know, I was a hospice chaplain before my mom died, and I was a hospice chaplain after my mom died, but I was not the same hospice chaplain. Mm -hmm. Uh, it made a profound effect on me and it really changed my perspective on how I perceived the family. And I realized how much the family sometimes gets overlooked when it comes to the patient's death. We focus so much on the patient that many times we overlook what's happening to the family. We overlook the grief experience that they're having. Mm -hmm. And going through that myself, I realized just how how serious that grief can be for people and how much they need each other uh, as a family and how much they need the support of hospice as well, the people who can come around them, who are not involved with the family, who are not part of the family, but who can provide that support. Um, and so it really helped me to have a different perspective on these things and to realize what it's like for the family as they are there with the patient during that time of death and mm-hmm. afterwards, even for that matter. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it did it have a very profound effect on me.
1: I can imagine. Wow. Um... There's so much to unpack there. Three days is not a long time to grieve.
0: <laughs> there is. Uh, no, and, you know, we we have sort of made that a, a standard, I think, in in all of the, the industry uh, is that, okay, we're going to give people three days for bereavement leave, as if somehow you're going to work through your grief in three days. Um it's I mean that's not even hardly enough time to mm-hmm. plan a funeral and have a funeral or memorial service right and yet that's the the standard that we have here in America at least that okay, we're going to give you three days leave to you know to to deal with the death of, of someone that you love and care about and then we're going to expect you to come back to work and function normally and yeah it just seriously cannot happen that way right uh, we bring our grief back to work with us many times and then there's just the logistical things as well for some people
2: mm-hmm. that
0: now they're going to have to to deal with the technical aspects of this death that just happened yeah uh, they're going to have to go to court and take care of all the, the things with the related to the will and all these other things and they're going to have to get the death certificates and and they're going to have to close certain accounts. And there's so much that's going to have to happen. Three days is never enough. It's just not. And we can't expect people to come back to work uh, and, and function normally after a death experience like that.
1: Yeah, I agree. So coming Coming back to work after three days, how was your team, your your colleagues in supporting you? Were they like, well, oh, get over it? Or were they like understanding or a mix?
2: Oh, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, that's one of the benefits of working in hospice is that they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And they were very supportive. I, I couldn't have had a better team around me at that point. Um, And so they even took some of the load off of me. Uh, They would take some of my patients and, and they would be the ones to take care of those patients for a short period of time. So they were very supportive and very helpful. Uh, I have to give them a lot of credit for that and, and, and helping me through those days when it was just tough.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: But I really did have a good support system there. And that helped. And as time went by, it became easier for me to, to be with the patients and to, to feel like I was, was coming back to a a normal frame of mind where I could, could be there for the patients and the families like I should be.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Knowing that each person's grief journey is different and each person processes grief in their own way and in their own time and also recognizing like emphasizing that there's no time limit for grief how much time was it for you to feel like you could start to function in a normalish way again
0: <clears throat> i'm gonna have to reflect on that um i think it came slowly mm-hmm. um i would Say that uh within about three months' time, I felt like I could you know be with the majority of my patients and and I would be um, I would be fine I wouldn't need okay. to to leave the room because my own right. grief was was interfering uh, and then about six months, uh, I felt like I was beginning to return to uh, a more normal feeling, but then. You know, grief never really does leave us. Even yeah. now, if I, if I think about my mother very deeply, I can find the tears welling up in my eyes, and uh, you know, get this lump in my throat, and I can feel that grief uh, returning again. Um, so I don't know that it ever, ever leaves us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have this ability, to, I think, to to compartmentalize and to hold it at a distance from us but then there are times when we just kind of fold it into us and we feel it much more deeply yeah uh, at, at times like that
1: i think it's the the thought that i had was kind of like an an ax head stuck in a tree if that ax head doesn't ever get out the tree doesn't mm. die, but it kind of grows around it <clears throat> and it incorporates that axe head right. into its into its growth, into its being. And I think that's what we do with what we can do with grief. It never really goes away, but we learn to work around it, we learn to grow around it, live with it, hold it function anyways
0: that's a really that's a really good illustration i like that
1: and it still hurts like it's it's still a a tender spot in us it's not like that hole is ever filled because it will always be a part of us
0: exactly exactly you know we we tell people that uh, grief is the price of love mm-hmm. and it's it's true but the that love the love never goes away either and so the grief never goes away as right.
2: well right
1: and would we really want yeah. it to if yeah. if our grief is a reminder no, really of the love to. then we wouldn't we wouldn't want that love to go away
0: Mm no it it's something that's going to to remain and so as as long as the love remains then the grief will remain with it maybe Mm -hmm. not to the degree the grief may not be to the same degree as it was in the beginning of the the grief but uh, it's certainly still going to remain there
1: yeah and I think, um, earlier we talked about disenfranchised grief, even if there, the relationship was strained or there may not have been love there. There's still that attachment, that connection
2: Right. of something meaningful. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Even if it's not, if we can't classify it as quote love
0: right right that's true
1: um so having the experience with your mom you said that you were not the same chaplain the hospice chaplain before and afterwards what were the main things that changed for you
0: I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think it really was the understanding of what the family was experiencing, mm-hmm. and that really made a huge difference for me. And I think I became a little bit more compassionate person as well. I mean, I have I have a a natural empathic personality, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm feeling compassion for people. Have always been that way. Yeah, but I think I became a more compassionate person after experiencing the death of my mom. And so I have a, a more tender heart towards the family and what they're going through and what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. And I also learned too, I had some regrets at, uh, as I look back at that short period of time that my mom was on hospice, I became a uh, part of her caregiving system. So I was actually the one who stayed with her during the night. And so she would need around the clock uh, care. She would need medicine given to her around the clock. And so I would be the one getting up in the middle of the night to make sure that she got her medications and that she was comfortable and, and doing all of those things to help her. Uh, And what I, and I felt like I was, I was doing a good job with that. But what I what I didn't do that I regret that I didn't was to spend time with her and, and just be with her and spend time, you know, asking her, you know, tell me, tell me how you're, you're feeling about what's happening to you right now. Um, You know, I, I didn't want to be a hospice chaplain to her. She was my mom. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted to just be a son. to her at that moment, but I wanted, I wanted to find out, you know, what was it about your life as a mom that you loved? What were some of the the highlights of your, your life that were important to you? Mm -hmm. And I regret that I didn't take time to ask her those deeper questions. Uh, And I, I mean, I knew what was, what was about to happen. I knew that her death would take place. It it happened much quicker than any of us were expecting. Yeah. But uh, I still regret that I didn't do that. And so consequently, I will counsel with family members of patients and tell them, spend time with, with your loved one, spend time with your mom or your dad or your husband, your wife, spend time with them, ask them questions. Um, you know, this is, this is going to be a special time. We don't know how long it's going to last. Mm-hmm. We don't know how long they'll be here, but spend time with them. just be with them yeah and so i I don't want them to go through the same regrets that that I've had when it comes to that.
1: That's amazing. and I think we can do that even when we're not on hospice
0: absolutely with
1: people just be and don't be afraid to put down all the, the, the task list, the responsibilities and take a moment yeah. just to just to be present with people.
0: Absolutely. Life Absolutely. Is... Be... Go ahead. Yeah. People don't people don't have to be on hospice for us to spend time with them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when the death is sudden, we won't have to necessarily have those regrets because we did take the time to Learn and find out about them and find out what's right. most important.
0: Yes, definitely. I've, I have also found out that I'm not the only one who has those kind of regrets. There have been a lot of families that I've talked to who express similar regrets about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it becomes important, I think, for me to counsel with families and say, spend time with your loved one now. Yeah. It's important. This is a critical time to spend time with them. So be there, Mm -hmm. be there with them.
2: Yeah.
1: That's so amazing. I think that's about all the time we have for today. Is there anything else you'd like to share or highlight from our conversation?
0: No, I think, uh, you know, creating an advanced care plan is important. I would really encourage people to do that. Uh, find out more about that and check out some of those resources. And uh, I think just to emphasize again what we just talked about of being with people, you know, spending time with them face-to-face, you know, eye-to-eye with each other, putting down our phones, turning off the devices that seem to distract and, and keep us separated from each other and just spend time with people. I think that's where we can all do something that's going to make a a difference for ourselves. I think it deepens uh, the relationships that we have when we actually spend time face-to-face with people Mm -hmm. without without any of the distractions.
1: Yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And I think that's a good note to end on. Just be there.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Be present, be there. (laughs) life is so short and so fragile and a hospice experience could be two days it could be years there may not even be a chance for a hospice right we never know
0: Mm -hmm. exactly so take the time that you have to be with people
1: yeah Terry, it's been uh, before we before we close off, where can our listeners find you again?
2: Yeah
0: best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, I have a uh, you know personal profile page there on LinkedIn. That's the, probably the best place to find me. If uh, they want to look up the company that I work for, uh, they can look up uh, harborhospice.com
2: okay or
0: Harbor Healthcare System.
1: Cool. Um, Jerry, it's been such a pleasure having you on my show and learning more about your story and hospice and what we can do to prepare for our end of life, if it's tomorrow, if it's today, if it's years and years out, and for the importance of making time for our, our people. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time, where we share real-life experiences of converting grief into growth. Just a reminder, we are moving from a weekly to a bi-weekly release schedule with subscription-only content on some of the off-weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on exclusive interviews and insights. And if you're struggling with your grief and would like help, I have recently opened enrollment for my program, Converting Grief into Growth. It's an individualized coaching program to support you in and through your grief, and or teach you to support others as they do the same. Converting Grief into Growth consists of 8 one-to-one sessions that each include a writing prompt and relevant action steps that you can implement immediately. The length of the program is individualized because each journey is different. We all have different losses, different styles of grieving, and different processing speeds. As a result, each journey will be individualized. We will go as fast as possible and as slow as necessary to get you long-lasting and permanent growth. So far, all of my clients have finished the program in four months or less and are still reaping the benefits of their time with me more than a year later. If, however, after two to four months, you feel like you still need more time, you can purchase a monthly add-on for continued support. If this is something you'd like to explore further, reach out to me through my website, grievingcoach.com, or send me an email at jenny at grievingcoach.com. We'll schedule a time to chat and see if this is a good fit for you. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways, than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters, so share your story.